0: You will discover that you do not have positive control. You cannot make a child a champion. All you have is negative control.
1: Welcome to the Be Rad Podcast, where we explore ways to pursue peak performance with passion throughout life without taking ourselves too seriously. I'm Brad Kearns, New York Times best-selling author, former number three world-ranked professional triathlete, and Guinness World Record Masters athlete. I connect with experts in diet, fitness, and personal growth and deliver short breather shows where you get simple, actionable tips to improve your life right away. Let's explore beyond the hype, hacks, shortcuts, and sciency talk to laugh, have fun, and appreciate the journey. It's time to Be Rad. and a special 5% discount for B-Rad podcast listeners. Just visit MITOREDLight, M I T O, redlight.com, and use the code BRAD on any of their products. Go for it today and get started on your red light journey. It is time for another highlight show. I love listening to these interesting excerpts from past podcast interviews. So, I will tee each one up briefly. You can get a little burst, and hopefully, that will pique your curiosity to go listen to the entire show. That's what these shows are all about. And if you did listen to the show, it's nice to bring back some of the highlights and keep you thinking about the great topics that we've covered. Why not start with my favorite podcast guest ever, Mia Moore? Of course, she's my favorite. And when I get her, when I rein her in to sit down once in a while, we always have some fun times. This one was recorded, I believe, in a hotel room somewhere, maybe Vegas. Who knows? We're all over the place. But uh, the idea was that I would present her with the rationale for eating an ancestral style diet, sort of from a blank canvas, like a married couple talking. And one of them's really interested and lives and breathes this stuff. And then she can talk about her own reflections uh, sort of from an outside perspective. And so she shares some dietary strategies that have worked for her that might not necessarily be directly aligned with the stuff I write about in books. And so it's kind of fun to see how uh, things that we can sync up on and converse about and uh, share opinions together. So here we go with an excerpt from Mia Moore
2: something else i'm going to go back to when i was doing that fastel diet it was more than just the food it was also like my day change during those two weeks i was i'm one that always stays up late and what happens when you stay up late you get the munchies and that, and at that point you're not going to cook something healthy mm. you're going to reach into the cupboard and see what's there right i know some people say they eat cereal right because it's easy someone may take a scoop of the ice cream that's in the fridge you never know or beef jerky, which is what I've done sometimes because it's there. Um, just you're munching or popcorn, our mm. favorite, with lemon olive oil instead of um, butter, but still. So I would stay up, I stay up late, and I'm munching that. Also adds calories to you, and you're not burning those calories. Um, so with this diet that I was doing, I'm eating that breakfast, you know, after my workout in the morning, that you know, little breakfast, then I have my lunch. And then dinner was because you're not eating a lot. So you're hungry earlier. So I was eating dinner at five. Again, normally we dinner at six or seven, Mm -hmm. which is why I stay up late. So I was finding myself going to bed earlier during those two weeks and actually getting more sleep as well. So and working out every day. So it's that whole cycle. my whole um, day change. And I think that made a difference. And I think that makes a difference when we kind of go the other direction because we're staying up late. We're eating junk food late. We're not working out as much or what, whatever it is.
1: Um, yeah, there's tons of research suggesting that eating after dark is adverse to your digestive circadian rhythm, which is so tied into your circadian rhythm overall. Um, I'm not sure I'm highly sensitive to that one. Like I don't, I don't have any problem eating a meal after dark or even uh, closer to but bed than you. is recommended. Right. That's you. Right. With
2: me, I found that it does make a well, difference. I mean, Everyone's different. Yeah. If you're getting
1: up past your, um, your bedtime, um, you're going to kick into sort of an alternative energy source, which is cortisol, the, the stress hormone that's supposed to be dropping, dropping, dropping as you make the environment dark and you wind things down, close down your screens, all those things. But if you spike cortisol by staying up late, by getting the stimulation from a screen and from artificial light, that's going to prompt sugar cravings and quick energy because we're not, you know, tapping into our natural energy sources, which are governed by exposure to uh, sunlight and those wonderful hormone balances that occur first thing in the morning we're supposed to wind everything down so it's sort of like an override so you're jumping into, um, you're pulling over into the gas station um, to get another fuel source for the last hour and yeah, that's a good point, you make that it's available and easy and um, also... That's
2: in your pantry. I guess if it wasn't purchased in my household, I wouldn't have it.
1: Yeah. I'm not sure about the research on this, but uh, maybe it's that we really want sugar at those times and the quick, easy to digest stuff rather than, um, you know, is is making some scrambled eggs as appealing at 1030 at night as popcorn? Probably not.
2: It is for my son. My oldest, I'll find him at 1030 at night making scrambled eggs after his hour he's got many more hours of gaming
1: (laughs) so that's kind of um he, he needs some nutritious food okay so we have sort of a nice um overview and status report where um the couple has obviously been discussing these things and uh living out our healthy lifestyle dreams over the last five six years right and i think maybe with this show um maybe I can um, we can kind of role play here where I take you a little deeper into the wonderful immersion of ancestral health principles, and then you could see sort of how that flies with your own personal experience coming from um, you know, your background of having a having an interest in healthy, living, healthy eating, um, but now having to, especially as you alluded to a couple times earlier in the show, you're having to embrace this radical new information that I walked through the door with one day, where you said, Yeah, now I guess you're not so into vegetables, all that kind of fun stuff. Right. Yeah. Okay. Um, so I think as we sort through, let's say, the best selling diet books of the last five decades and what the trends and patterns have been. Um, There's some pretty uh, interesting trends that we really um, should educate ourselves about and understand where things are at. And one of them is this toppling of conventional wisdom that has occurred at an accelerated rate over the last 20 years with the rise of the internet and the ancestral health movement and so forth. But now what's coming to appear is that the U.S. government dietary recommendations, uh, which by the way have been exported across the world to all other countries, you know, we, we came up with this, uh, flawed science and questionable research and um, come out with the food pyramid back in the 90s um, and numerous iterations of it and we're now realizing that the standard western diet has been a widespread dismal failure resulting in the fattest sickest population in the history of humanity and some of the highlights there have been the introduction of processed foods and the heavy promotion of these processed foods as actually healthy and superior to some of the centerpiece foods of human evolution and amazingly a lot of this information holds strong today even as the research and the groundswell of information and um, success stories and failure stories have come about but you still will go to the doctor and they'll say hey you should cut back on your eggs because your ldl cholesterol "Quote unquote," bad cholesterol is looking a little high, and some of these in some of these uh, notions are about forty or fifty years flawed and dated from what w- the news was back right. in the sixties and seventies.
2: I mean, like who made cereal <laughs> the thing they eat in the mornings? I mean, to me, that that that's like the grossest thing. Cereal. Oh boy, you, if just, you look at uh, the ingredients.
1: You just set me up for a good one there because Kellogg was this uh, evangelical um, health freak, and he invented cereal um, as a way of quelling um, the desire to masturbate in young youth that he wanted to indoctrinate into his religious values. And that is no joke. That's why cereal was invented, because he knew that stuffing um, the, the, the human with um, this processed food would um, diminish libido. So that's kind of a funny start to the, the cereal lifestyle. Here is an interesting interview with the Ironman triathlon legend, Dave Scott. He was the six-time champion of the Hawaii Ironman World Championships. He was at the very beginnings of the professionalism of the sport of triathlon. So he was a tremendous role model that I looked up to when I was aspiring to compete as a pro triathlete. And there was nothing like Dave on the Kona Coast every October when he would show up fit and ready to peak and deliver another breakthrough sensational performance out there at his specialty of the Ironman. And Dave was uh, highly studious and inquisitive about exercise physiology and performance nutrition, always has been, and that kind of framed his uh, analytical perspective That he had about training that was often written about back in the day when he was performing at his peak Uh, but after he retired many years ago uh, he's gone on to be a very prominent coach in the triathlon scene he puts on training camps he has great content coming out of his dave scott operation based in boulder colorado and on this particular show uh, we focus on nutrition and diet and some of his awakenings and alterations in his philosophy that have occurred over time particularly when dave came out as a huge proponent of keto when keto got popular several years ago and the uh, amusement here is that he used to be the carbohydrate king back in the 80s when he was pushing the cutting edge of endurance performance and winning these hawaii ironman triathlons and training for eight hours a day there was literally Uh, very few humans that have ever pushed their body to the level that Dave Scott has when he was training at his peak and putting in all those hours of swimming, cycling and running and figuring out how to fuel himself. And so he'll tell you about how back in the day, he used to consume 600 grams of carbohydrates. And then as he embraced keto and experimented, uh, he went down to vastly fewer than that but he wants to clarify some of his positions and he's not a zero carb guy. He realizes the need for carbohydrates and endurance, but he talks about timing and some certain strategies that even in this very brief clip, you're gonna get some good takeaway information. He's gonna tell you why you should wait to drink your morning cup of coffee at least 35 to 50 minutes I'm serious, 35 to 50 minutes. I told you this guy was highly quantifiable. So we're plugging right in there. Start your watch in the morning and don't drink your coffee for at least 35. And then you'll honor Dave Scott's suggestion. But let's enjoy some commentary on diet from the endurance training machine, the man himself, Dave Scott. So Dave's given us permission to have a protein snack in the evening. And just, a of little, there, just a little. Just a little. bit. of the evening. pie. Uh, What about the commentary we hear on the other side, the dangers of excess protein consumption? That was a big talking point, especially with the keto craze, and it's gonna knock you out of ketosis because it has some insulin stimulating effects. And now a lot of experts, at least that I follow, are strongly countering this. I love Rob Wolf's epic one-liner on the topic when he says, "Um, if you wanna live longer, lift more weights and eat more protein, and opening up this, this idea that maybe we were misinformed and then secondly, before I let you answer the question, I'm, I'm going to give part answer is like, it's pretty hard to overstuff yourself on eggs and steak versus regretting that Hogan Daz and that, that, that hostess pie.
3: Yeah, you hit, hit it on the nose, Brad. And that, that's, that's, very, that's very true. And I think the misinformation that, that has been kind of doled out and uh, unfortunately doesn't follow all the, all the science is that it, if I have way too much protein and only protein in the morning, I come off a time-restricted eating pattern, you, you can get a huge insulin response. But for example, in the, in the morning, and I get this question, I'm sure you do as well, what should I eat in the morning? Well, it really depends. It's contingent on what your normal eating plan is, whether you're carbohydrate adapted or your low carb or your keto or somewhere in between that. Uh, and then what your exercise routine was the day before Mm-hmm. And when you finish dinner, so you know. Try to answer those questions. High intensity exercise or big volume the day before. In other words, you're, you had a hearty workout. You finished dinner fairly early, and now there's this window of maybe twelve hours. Y- y- you should eat in the morning, and it, and it should be pr- it should be protein. But you really kind of want to wait because when you wake up in the morning, your your cortisol levels naturally go up, and they pump out glucose, and so you you have these. Glucose stores, it's called gluconeogenesis. The gluconeogenesis uh, taps into protein sources and also fatty acids. And so you're producing glucose without bringing in a a donut in the morning or a bagel. Mm. Uh, And and so you kind of want to let that rise. And then the other thing where I think where athletes go wrong, and certainly on racing, um, is that they have a cup of coffee right away. I'm a big advocate of coffee. I never drank it. I drink buckets of it, probably too much. But you want to wait in the morning to let your natural cortisone wow. levels start to drop. So if you can wait 35 to 45 to 50 minutes after you get up before you have a cup of coffee. Some people say, I have to have it 10 minutes. No, don't. Because your cortisol levels are high, and that's just going to heighten it. And then have a little bit of protein, some fat, which will slow that down. And you can also add a small amount of carbohydrates as, as well. So I think where people over, overdo it again is that they have tendency to to eat too much and to elevate your blood glucose level after you have this window, it's called the Dawn effect. Which I know you're familiar with the Dawn effect is cortisol levels going up, natural sugar being fed into your system via gluconeogenesis. And you're kind of ready to go for it. a light workout with a light day before go out and exercise. You'll start burning free fatty acid. Mm-hmm. That's a good thing. You're not going to burn any muscle mass and then have your meal after that.
1: Uh, I think I wrote you that I've been experimenting with different strategies lately, and I'm wondering what you think about uh, Jay Feldman's recommendation, I guess you could call it, where if you do give yourself some nutritious carbohydrates uh, sometime in the morning, and you're going to uh, intervene with that gluconeogenesis, which is arguably a stress mechanism, and in the big picture, when you're trying to recover from a big workout or prepare for a busy, hectic, stressful day with, with workouts and things on the schedule um Could that be a winning strategy for a metabolically healthy athlete?
3: Yeah, I think it's 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 not a zero carbohydrate, and I'm not an advocate of that. So even if you combine some protein and fat, quite often it has a, a couple grams of, of carbohydrate. And if you're a a milk eater and you have whole fat plain yogurt, and then you add a you add some nut, nuts, even macadamia nuts, were about ninety percent fat, they have a, a very small amount of carbohydrate. That's not re- A great example, you add coconut to it, which is a fruit, uh, coconut shavings, or or, uh, then all of a sudden you're starting to add carbohydrates. If you want to add a healthy fruit to it, you know a lot of people uh, say, "Well, I really like blueberries; they're really flavorful, but they're they're high in fructose." You don't add a lot of them. Raspberries are less. Blackberries are less than that. I mean, generally the berries are fairly good. So yes, I agree that you can add the carbohydrates, and and I think even people that are looking at a keto nutrition, if they're actually measuring their ketones, they're not void of carbohydrates. I mean, you're eating a lot of of healthy cruciferous I and mean, leafy green vegetables throughout the day, and, and a lot of people will be in ketosis and, and be able to go back in that with 100 to 130 grams of protein or carbohydrates a day, not 600 like you talked about, which I used to have. That was a
1: lot of bad ones. Okay, so there's a sweet spot uh, <laughs> for for many people, including you, somewhere between. Uh, 600 at the extreme training level of the old days. And then, uh, you know, in the, I guess you could call it the ketogenic framework where we're deliberately uh, watching those grams of carbs in order to uh, kick into purported health benefits. So, um, how do we wrestle with this uh, somewhat controversial topic these days?
3: Well, I, I don't think it's really controversial. I think a lot of people just don't really know about it. Uh, and I think when people initially, uh, if they want to go to a keto nutrition, they've got to kind of flush their system, and you're very uh, versed on this area. So it may take a couple of weeks initially just to flush out the glucose from all your organs, and sometimes mm-hmm. feel sluggish dur- during that time. The last adaptive phase of of ketone uh, nutrition is your muscle glycogen and liver glycogen will go up with with a high healthy fat moderate protein and low carbohydrate there and there's a lot of uh, great studies on this one called the fast study uh that that was done they and they, you know they were surprised they said wow we're seeing glycogen resynthesis on this keto diet this is
1: great news for people that are really staunch believers in it that you don't need to fuel yourself with carbohydrates okay we're back with one of my favorite podcast guests tremendously inspiring and motivational every time. And he hits hard and moves at a quick pace. It's Dr. John Demartini. So please go back and consume the few shows that I've had the privilege of joining him. And here he provides a really interesting, uh, fresh perspective on the term passion. And we're so conditioned to uh, the advice and the suggestion of pursuing our passions in life. And what are you passionate about? So he gives you a uh, some food for thought here where he doesn't like to use that word in this context. And instead, his favorite term is pursuing your inspired purpose. And he'll tell you why uh, that term passion can be uh, literally interpreted as something that we don't. Uh, really mean with the uh, colloquial use. And I really appreciate his insight. I still have the tagline on my website that says pursue peak performance with passion throughout life. And I think everyone knows what that means in the uh, general accepted uh, cultural use these days. But here's a little twist on it that's going to be really interesting for you. And I think provide a lot of value in a short excerpt,
4: not to mention the whole show. I don't use passion in my life. I'm not a passionate guy. Compassion means to suffer with somebody. Passion means to suffer. And most people have confused passion with a mission. An inspired mission is not a passion. And that distinction is not being drawn out there, and people don't know the difference. Passions were considered lust, Mm. greed, gluttony, sloth, Christians called them the seven deadly sins. They were immediate gratifying pleasures without pains. Those were the passions. And the reason why they're passions is because anytime you pursue a one-sided type of life, the other side smacks you and you suffer. That's why it was called passion. So it's being used since 1985, since the passion for excellence came out. People changed the word and now the people think well, it means being enthused about something. But even enthusiasm, is confused in its roots. Entheos, the divine within under St. Augustine, was that you have now poised equanimity within your mind. But people think it's rah-rah standing on chairs going, yes, yes, yes. That's not enthusiasm. That's mania. <laughs> mania creates pania. <laughs> so I distinguish, I'm very much an etymologist, and I look at the roots of words because they do have meaning and they have an impact, and the distinctions are important. So I don't promote passion or compassion with people, because I think that those are, uh, a compassion is one wounded individual now buying into the wounds of another individual and going, oh, that has pain without a pleasure I can feel for you. Mm. It isn't going to make them grow. I'd rather have hit them, as Emerson said, right between the eyes and say, let's get in touch with reality now, and let's find out what you're doing to create your suffering. Because I've not seen suffering in people who know how to manage their life. I see people suffering when they don't, when they're not listening to their intuitions and following what's really important to them. So I'm not pursuing passion. I'm pursuing an inspired mission, a real purpose, a teleological purpose that somebody, when they live by their highest values, pursue. And Aristotle distinguished this in his time. The the, the word telos meant end in mind. And in his idea, the end in mind was the highest priority, the highest value. In fact, when Immanuel Kant, the fourth most powerful philosopher, talked about a priority, they weren't talking about priorities. They were talking about the highest priority, which we allowed ourselves to intuitively gather information. So the a priority state is the highest priority. It's the one thing. Gary Keller calls it the one thing. Find that one thing and stick to it. Right, find your Donald Trump taught me many years ago. You know he's a controversial character. I learned something from him. I used to live underneath him, and uh, and in the process of doing that, he said find that one thing and do it over and over again and build momentum doing it until you become unstoppable and you'll have incremental momentum to great achievement. That's why I teach the breakthrough to experience one thousand one hundred sixty times I'm about to do it one thousand one hundred sixty one times this week. So I just keep doing something repeatedly until it's mastered. You know, like a martial arts or like a dance or like a singing or whatever. So finding the thing that you spontaneously are inspired to do, that you love doing, that doesn't require extrinsic motivation, that is deeply meaningful to you, that you can't wait to bring to the world, and that serves, and structuring it in a way that it meets the needs of other people so you have a sustainable, fair exchange when you deliver it, mm-hmm. that's the path of a mission not a passion. That is a longer sentence
1: than all I like to do is play video games and eat pizza.
4: Well, if you're doing video game, my son has got a video YouTube channel and has got 55,000 people following. So that's not just a passion. It's his mission. He does it literally eight to 12 hours a day. Mm-hmm. So if I see it as an escape, I see them in their amygdala, if I see it as a mission, I see them inspired and in making incremental progress towards the mastery of it and doing it in the form of an economic exchange. It also occurs to me when you replace that word passion
1: with inspired mission, then we also get this realization that when you are on your inspired mission, um, it's not necessarily fun and games and peachy king and popcorn and bubblegum all the time. Sometimes it's difficult, challenging, potentially well,
4: discouraging, etc. If you're not filling your day with challenges that inspire you, your day is designed to fill up with challenges that don't. <laughs> oh. One is called eustress, and it's wellness-promoting, mm. and it balances the cytokines, and the other one is distress, and it polarizes the cytokines into storms. Yeah, that's,
1: that's heavy. And I think now we have um, people jumping off the bandwagon who don't deserve to be there. And I think it brings up a question because it seems to me with all this free exchange of information these days and the rise of influencers and people showing and telling how magnificent their life is, we kind of have created a culture of people who are, I guess, indulging in this type of programming. Uh, but then failing to execute, and also perhaps people spreading this message in a distorted manner, such as pursue your passions like me, and I'm about to get on my private jet and have some more passion on the Caribbean island, but forgetting the distinction that you draw between inspired mission and passion and and frivolity, I
4: guess. uh, Everybody could maybe get this, that if you pursue uh, and make money without meaning, it will lead to debauchery. And if you go and pursue money with meaning, it will lead to philanthropy, Mm. the love of human beings, not the party escaped. Mm -hmm. I'll give an example. There's a gentleman, um, how can I say it without revealing who he is, uh, that I've known for 21 years who owned a very large railroad company in America, and um, he finally retired. Now, while he was owning a railroad uh, up until his 70s, he was very uh, philanthropic, very dedicated, very focused. The second he sold it and just had money without meaning, I watched him gain weight, have heart Mm. problems, health problems, and drink and treat his wife a little less Mm -hmm. than ideal. Mm. And so I've, I've watched what happens. If you don't have something to fill your day with that's deeply meaningful, that inspires you, that does something that makes fulfillment. If you ask a thousand people in a room, go to the most fulfilling moment in your life, I will guarantee you that 99.9% of them will say it's when I'm doing something that's meaningful that contributes to somebody else's life and they say, thank you. So if you're not doing that, you're missing out on the fulfillment in life. When I spoke at the United Nations thing last year, I was on I was talking on innovation. And it was interesting. And people don't realize that it's challenge that makes innovation, not support. If you have the same assimilative system, you have what is called mm-hmm. assimilation and accommodation. When you have information that you've already heard before and you assimilate it just goes in, it's not a challenge. It's the challenging information that makes you think, it makes you come up with new ways of doing things. So pursuing challenges that inspire you, that are high in your values wakes up genius, creativity, and innovation to give you cutting-edge uh, things in business or in life. So, I, that whole chapter is how to maximize the mental powers we have and how to be doing something that is meaningful and inspiring spontaneously so you're not having to be motivated to do things. Anything you need motivation to do is not important to you. And anything I need motivation to do, I delegate. If somebody comes up to me and says, "Look, I want you to do this," and it's not inspiring to me, and it's not no, I'll I'll tell you what, I'll if you want to pay me for that, that's fine, but I'm going to hire somebody to do it. <laughs> and as long as you pay me at least as much as what I'll hire it, it'll get done. But I'm not going to do it. I'm going to get somebody else that is inspired and loves doing that yeah. to take care of that. I don't want to do. Anytime you do things lower on your values, you devalue yourself, and when you devalue, so does the world. So if you want to go backwards. Financially and in business, and you know, just keep doing low priority stuff. And if you come up with excuses why you can't get away from them, then you're holding yourself back, and it's all BS because it's not true. I've taken well, thousands, uh, <laughs> thousands of people say I can't do it. I, I show them how, and then they go, "Oh,
1: yeah," and then they do it. Yeah, the, the excuses are true until you break through and no longer make it an excuse. Yeah, yeah that that's and, uh, looking like we have to uh, get good at. Uh, drawing personal boundaries and uh, you know communicating authentically rather than just going getting bounced through the pinball machine and everyone knows I can come over and interrupt you at work because you're good at spreadsheets and so I bust into your office and and all of a sudden the the low priority
4: distractions become your day. Well, we had we had in our office years ago little whips, whip. <laughs> a little whip, a whip, and anytime they would request something that wasn't on the job description or wasn't. By authority, by the, the rules of command, they pull the whip out. Go, go back to your, go back to your space. <laughs> just for fun. But see, if you fill your day with very high priority things, it's easy to say no to people. Mm-hmm. If you've got a, 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 think of a day when you're just full on, and it's high priority, and somebody says, "Can you do this?" Uh, not today. Absolutely not today. But if you don't have priorities, you're not filled with priorities, it's easy to be vulnerable to those things. Mm-hmm. That's Parkinson's Law. If you don't fill your day with high priority actions, it fills up with low priority distractions. It's, that's, that's entropy. Entropy takes over anything that's not organized with neg entropy. The same thing with money. People don't realize it with money. If you don't put your money into assets, you're going to end up having it spent on unexpected bills that will be liabilities. Oof. That's a big one. And people don't get that. That's why it automatically forced savings literally daily into investments, going out every day, investments, because then it grows in value and I'm buying appreciable things instead of, and I don't have all the unexpected bills as a result of it. It's organized. And any bill that's fluctuating, I find the averages throughout the time and I set a certain amount and I do an agreement of a set amount. So I'm taking out volatilities out of my business and just stabilizing it. Anything that's volatile pushes money away. Anything that's stable pulls money in. Basic laws of, of uh, management of time and space and energy and matter. Okay, so that was a the the opening uh, secret of seven. That's the first. The second yeah. one is on business. You know, nobody goes to work for the sake of a company. They go to work to fulfill what they value most. And if they can fulfill what they value most, they're engaged in the company. If they can see how their job description is helping them get what they want, they'll do it. If they don't, they'll come up with sickness, they'll come up with excuses, they'll come up with all kind of distractions. (laughs) They'll take time off and go and stand in a 45-minute line at a Starbucks, which is ridiculous. Anybody that's got time to do that is obviously not engaged. Uh Because people engaged are going to want to do that. They don't want to get away from doing something that is meaningful. So, So I tell people that if you're needing some stimulant, you're obviously not inspired by what you're doing. If you're inspired, you don't want to be distracted by volatilities like that. Mm. But if you don't, if you don't fill your day with high priority actions, it's going to fill up with high priority distractions. And if you don't see how what you're doing is helping you fulfill what's meaningful, don't expect to maximize your performance.
1: Greetings, my fitness minded listeners. I want to acquaint you with the Primal Fitness Expert Certification Program, the most comprehensive home study multimedia fitness education course in the world. If you want to enhance your personal knowledge of all aspects of leading a healthy, active, fit lifestyle, this total immersion course will be life-changing. I'm the lead instructor and author of the course, and we have 14 chapters of extensive written content with over 100 accompanying videos covering topics such as general everyday movement, including micro-workouts and dynamic workstation tips, the full experience of gym-based strength training and all the different modalities, a complete presentation, on all aspects of sprinting, both running and low-impact options, an assortment of high-intensity interval training and high-intensity repeat training strategies... amazing home-based fitness education for you and you get one-on-one expert email support and private Facebook group connection throughout your studies to ensure that you absorb everything optimally and you pass your series of exams and get certified so go to primal health Coach.com slash brad to enjoy a very special limited time and i'm not kidding this is a big time discount just for you 25 percent off your tuition a fantastic premium offer at primal health coach.com slash brad for the most comprehensive fitness course you can ever find here comes my good friend and longtime primal blueprint co-worker l russ she is the hostess with the mostus on the L. Russ podcast, uh, best-selling author of the Paleo Thyroid Solution, still one of the best and most comprehensive and actionable books for thyroid sufferers, especially those who have suffered at the hands of mainstream medical treatment, and that is sort of L.'s calling card, where she was so deep into the medical system and on all kinds of medications and protocols. And suffering and struggling and then took matters into her own hands, uh, experimented with dietary transformation and cutting-edge holistic health practices and wrote an entire book about it. And she is hitting hard on this subject because she's very passionate about it. She talks uh, brazenly about how she felt uh, she was mistreated, misdiagnosed uh, through the medical system and what she did about it and what you can do To educate yourself further about these conditions that are so prevalent. The reason why they're so prevalent, a lot of it's related to diet and lifestyle habits, and she'll give you a fresh perspective, Um, might be causing your your physician to shake their head a little bit at times, especially when she has spicy commentary. But you do have to respect uh, the journey that she's been on and how she's been able to heal herself. And spread the word and help others. So here we go, L. Russ talking about thyroid.
5: Yeah. So I mean, just just for starters, two uh, hundred. 200- plus million people in the world have thyroid issues, 25 plus million Americans, uh, and 60% are undiagnosed. Now, if 60% are undiagnosed, uh, there's probably a lot more that are actually on thyroid hormone replacement and not optimized, not being treated right. You can actually be on thyroid hormone replacement from a doctor who has somehow gauged a thyroid problem, but misgauged it enough to where they're giving you a little bit of treatment and it's not the right one. So there are still people suffering, even though they're like, well, my doctor said it's on my thyroid because I'm on thyroid hormone. Nope. You can be hypothyroid. So I guess I would just start off by you know giving everyone a little bit of a rundown. Uh, I always talk about the thyroid being the master gland and that's not me. That's not my opinion. That is just uh, biology. And so- Why is it the master gland? Well, first of all, for everyone that doesn't know, for men, your thyroid gland is below your Adam's apple. And for people watching now, you can see me pointing to the base of my neck. That's where your thyroid gland is. And it's a little butterfly-shaped gland. It is the master gland because it is in charge of, number one, the production regulation of all of your sex hormones, okay? Number two, your heart rate. Number three, your body temperature. All of these things are completely necessary to live a proper life, have methylation processes occur, uh, responses to infections, things like this. So those are just some of the things, those are some of the main things that the thyroid is responsible for. So let's give one scenario. A 25-year-old came to me a few years ago, 25-year-old male, and he had low testosterone. And now if it were me, I would say, okay, hold on, what 25-year-old boy doesn't have high testosterone, let's look at the thyroid first, right? We always got to look at the master gland first to rule it out. But a lot of doctors don't do that. So instead, the doctor did the classic Western patchwork operation, which was, well, let's give this kid testosterone but it didn't help. And so finally he came to we got his blood tested. It turns out he had a horrible thyroid problem. And what was the solution there? Put him on thyroid hormone replacement and then get you off the testosterone. And then his natural levels will come back because it is supported by having the right level of thyroid hormones. So back to how important the thyroid gland is. It's very rare that someone is born without a thyroid gland at all. That is extremely rare. However, when that happens, if it is not caught right away, mental disability will completely come in and or death immediately because it is responsible for the development of our brains and everything else. So if you can't live without a thyroid gland, aka thyroid hormones what do you think life's going to be like when you have subpar golf reference for you uh subpar levels of thyroid hormones it's like a slow death that's how it feels and that's what it's like it's this accelerated aging um and then all these things start to happen to you you fall apart and that's why there's 30 40 symptoms that i list in my book of which i had 30 and so then you start to fall apart and then you go oh oh uh the doctor tests your hormones. Oh, you 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 know, you got hormone problems, but then they're not looking at the thyroid. So they're giving you and then you become like a frickin' quilt with like patched work stuff, and you never got to the root. Um, one of the biggest examples is when I uh, so with women, it often manifests itself in gynecological issues like miscarriages, infertility, uh, polycystic ovarian syndrome, endometriosis, uh, abnormal bleeding, uh, early menopause—all these kind of things. Anything gynecological, and in men, same thing too. It would be related to low testosterone, so it would be lack of erections, it would be uh, lack of recovery from exercise, disrupted sleep. Um, um, so one of the things that happened to me is I was bleeding all the time when this happened and I was 30 years old and I just kept having my period all the time, which is not normal. And the doctor did the patchwork by just giving me the birth control pill. They were testing my thyroid incorrectly and were like, ah, it's not your thyroid and just kept giving me pills. And I kept bleeding through them. They didn't work again because no one was getting to the root. Then I went to another gynecologist and they diagnosed me with polycystic ovarian syndrome. Now, most people would say, well, how could a dumb doctor like do that? No, no, no. If you and I looked at the ultrasound and looked at the textbook in medical, we would have absolutely concluded that. Mm -hmm. The question should have been, Why? Why is a healthy 30 year old with great gynecological history suddenly having this problem? So instead that doctor wanted to put me on metformin Um, and all I needed to do was correct my thyroid and I have never had a gynecological issue since. So this is so important for women, especially if you're trying to get pregnant. You do not wanna have unnecessary miscarriages. You wanna have a healthy pregnancy. It's important to rule out before that. And then also important to rule out before doing any type of sexual hormone replacement. I've heard people be like, I have been suffering. I've been trying, I've had dealing with thyroid issues for 10 years. Now, when someone says that to me, and I'm just going to tell everyone listening here, the only reason anyone suffers for years and years is because of one or both of the following reasons. Number one, you are dealing with an uninformed doctor that has no clue how to deal with this. Number two, you're uninformed and you can't help your doctor help you. You can't help your doctor practice medicine with you. and so it's usually the case where the patient is ignorant, you know, not their fault. We expect doctors to be the experts in this, right? I have a philosophy degree. I did not expect to become a thyroid expert, you know? So so that is really, these are all of the issues that happen. Um, And there's more along the way where an, an uninformed doctor can fail. Uh, but that's sort of the gist of it. And so This is essential to human health, it's essential to anti-aging, it's essential to our hormonal makeup, and we have more receptors in our brain for the biologically active thyroid hormone than anywhere else. So what happens is, is one of the symptoms is brain fog or cognitive issues. You start to speak like a dyslexic, you can't find the words, you're slurring words, you can't think, you can't remember, you're reading a paragraph 50 times, you're starting to think to yourself oh shit, I'm getting dumb. Something's wrong with my brain, you know? And that's a very scary one to kind of admit because you just feel like, oh, maybe I'm aging or something's wrong with me. Um, It also fosters depression, not just because your body's falling apart. Yeah, that sucks. It's literally... Depression. You just can't, you can treat depression with thyroid hormone if you wanted to. So, again, someone's depressed, check the thyroid because the Prozac will last two, three months and then it's not going to work because you never got to the root of it. And honestly, I've taught in LA, I spoke with the head of a very famous psychiatric ward of a major hospital. And I asked him, Do you test these following things before you put someone on like an SSRI? Nope. He's testing the 19, 1973 outdated thyroid test that no informed doctors use. So how many people are, I'm not saying there's never a use form, how many people are on these things and then they're not working because the doctor says, not your thyroid, it's fine. I also had a doctor tell me when I was bloated, fat, uh, hair falling out, acne, bleeding. um, He said, well, it's not your thyroid. And then he hit my gym shoes in the office and said, just use these more. And I, and I wanted to jump off a bridge because Brad, at that time, I was exercising two hours a day. I was doing everything I could to get ahead of this insidious weight gain. So that is like one of the number one symptoms. Now, some people don't have weight gain, but most people do. And that's a, that's the first sign it's like either a gynecological issue or a a male you know, issue there. Um, And, or you're cold all the time, your brain, you're exhausted, but then it usually is like the inability to lose weight. And so then what do people do? They go to keto, they do all this stuff they're trying to, and that's not going to get you there either. Or it works for a few months and they feel good. And then it crashes. Cause again, they never got to the heart of it. And frankly, on the keto note, if you are seriously hypothyroid and it is not a result of being type two diabetic. So let me explain that. If you're edged towards type two diabetes, which your audience knows is what you give to yourself unbeknownst to you, it's not an autoimmune form of diabetes type one, it's what you kind of eat yourself into it. And when you get into that, yes, you can become insulin resistant and that could cause a thyroid problem. But short of having that be a thyroid induced thing, let's just a normal person in this world, you're gaining weight, you weren't overweight before, you didn't have type two, suddenly you're gaining weight. Now you're going to try to go do keto and do all these things. Well, you're going to get fatter because you really don't have any of the fat burning T3 to support this high fat diet. And not only that, it's really going to mess up your lipid panel. So what happened, mine was messed up too when I was hypothyroid. So the doctor will give you a statin, right? Or you have high blood pressure, they'll give you a blood pressure pill. Again, this goes back to the testosterone. It's all of the things related to the thyroid, the master gland, and they spend time patchworking the symptoms that come from it versus addressing it. Hashimoto's is the autoimmune form of hypothyroidism. So let me explain that. So I'm sure people listening realize, like. When you have an autoimmune disease, what happens is your immune system makes a mistake. It makes a mistake, it starts attacking a part of your body. So when you have MS your immune system makes a mistake and starts attacking the myelin sheaths that are on your nerves. And that's why people with MS feel like they're plugged into a light socket all day long or these awful symptoms. Uh, You know, type one diabetes, right? The autoimmune form. Your immune system makes a mistake, starts attacking the pancreas like an enemy. And now your pancreas gives up, stops producing insulin, and now you got to go on insulin. So with Hashimoto's, what happens is your immune system makes a mistake and starts to try to murder the thyroid gland. (laughs) And so that's how that happens. And it, you know, creates antibodies again, just like rheumatoid arthritis MS or any of these other autoimmune conditions so that is one cause of it now when we're talking about like autoimmune hypothyroidism that can be actually kind of caught quickly and it's totally related to diet it's one of the things we know for sure a thousand percent is that gluten will ignite the hand if you ingest gluten the Hashimoto's antibodies will increase. Why is that? There's molecular mimicry going on there where there's a component of gluten that kind of matches thyroid tissue to the mistaken immune system and it'll start attacking. It'll start going into fight or flight and and doing an attack mode. So, for example, we have, I won't say her name, but we have a former colleague from Primal uh was not on thyroid hormone replacement, but she was starting to feel exhausted and depressed and all this kind of stuff. And I, she came to me and I said, okay, well, you know what? Let's get your thyroid checked. We checked her thyroid and she was positive for the Hashimoto's antibodies. Now, let me explain this. Let's say one of the antibodies, the level is zero to 34. Hers was only 14. Now, some people with that might not even feel it. But she did. And because she had a positive number, I said to her, hey, this is indicative of, an you know, because if I take that test, it kind of says less than six or not applicable because I don't have Hashimoto's. But when you're positive at all, ooh, red flag. And I asked her, I said, hey, look, just be honest. Have you been eating a lot of gluten by any (laughs) chance? And she said, oh, my God, I have been eating so much pizza and bread and shit in the past couple months. I said, look, I should change course right now, because if you keep going in this direction, you will have to go on thyroid hormone replacement. So in order to avoid it, cut it out right now, stop the train, and let's see what happens. Three weeks later, called me. Oh my God, my brain is lit up. I feel freaking amazing. Hi, welcome to paleo. Welcome to mm, gluten-free being the move for that. So she just saved herself an entire lifetime of possibly having to go on thyroid hormone replacement. Now, here's another scenario. Someone has Hashimoto's. They are on thyroid hormone replacement because they have to be, but they don't feel the antibodies in the background because they're on thyroid hormone replacement. So they actually don't feel these antibodies. That's also a problem because that's a silent killer in the background. So whether you're on thyroid hormone or not, or or what? And if you are, in, if something's indicated that you have Hashimoto's, you really got to go gluten free. Sometimes you have to go autoimmune paleo, uh, autoimmune protocol. It just depends. And people can look into that. But there's just been a trend where people have noticed that some foods and even seasonings like paprika and things like that can really affect people with autoimmune disorders. I interviewed Seamus Mullen, famous chef, cured himself of rheumatoid arthritis. One of the things he said in in the interview was yeah, I can never eat Szechuan food. And I said, oh, is that because of like the spices or something like that, or the oils or like, what is that? He goes, no, it's because when you cook those peppers at a high heat, it releases a level of lectins that will give, will affect my rheumatoid arthritis. He was on 12 medications and a complete mess for seven years. And it only took him one year to get off all the medications because he adjusted his diet. He was a chef, figured it out, and now he's riding bikes, he's been pain-free and rheumatoid arthritis free for years. You would test his blood now, no antibodies. So your goal, if you're out there and you have any autoimmune disorder is to get antibodies down to the lowest levels possible or undetectable. And sometimes that's achievable. Now, sometimes people need other methods and other modes of getting these antibodies down, and there are modalities for that. So that is a form of hypothyroidism that's autoimmune-inspired and often, if caught early in the teen years or whatever, can, can stave you off of further problems. Then there's just hypothyroidism that happens for seemingly unknown reasons, like me.
1: Here we go with my old friend Gordo Byrne, former elite ultra distance triathlon world champion and former venture capital high rising hotshot who retired from the money scene and then went into a career as a professional endurance athlete at an advanced age and now has transitioned into one of my favorite bloggers in the world. He writes about family, fitness, and finances, and I want you to connect with his wonderful newsletter, which is very crisp and short and always delivering some really thoughtful, actionable insights and tying together the important subjects of fitness, family, and finances. And here in this excerpt, the, the show, we talked about uh, many great things, but uh, this is a really memorable takeaway and some of my favorite insights about parenting, especially as it comes to the uh, the hyper- accelerated experience of youth sports today and all the well-meaning parents who want to make their kids into a champion by sheer force of uh, financial expenditure and driving them around to an overly accelerated competitive experience. He says, you're going to realize that you don't really have any positive control on your child's destiny as an athlete, but you have a whole bunch of negative control. You can really screw things up. I love that very much. And then, secondly, another great parenting insight at a glance is the difference between the impact of what you say and what you do and who you are as a person. So, just a short excerpt from Gordo. I think you're going to love his blog. Please sign up and then go listen to the entire episode to
0: Gordo Burn. I think you need to decide as a family what mm. your definition of success is and not let other people. Tell you what being successful is, and you know, I had to think this stuff through, so for myself, uh, you know around the time of my thirtieth birthday, how am I going to define success? What is it? And then, you know, twelve years later, young family, got to think it through again. Mm. What is successful? How are we going to define it? And yeah, and when I talk about knowing the game you're playing, define your own game. Don't let someone don't don't let your culture define the game that you and your family want to be playing. I would also say that if you dig deeper and you really want to give your child the opportunity to be a great athlete, you will discover that you do not have positive control. You cannot make a child a champion. All you have is negative control. You can Mm. screw them up. So your only ability is direct the situation. And when you embrace that, you will realize that, well, ultimately, it's all I'm trying to do is equip this child and then this teen with a toolbox of skills and experiences and a work ethic, and then they will be released into the world. And this will happen way before high school because you can't control their effort at practice. It needs to be coming from within them. And you can drive them to practice. You can make them practice. You can make them do doubles, but you can't make them train. And we we already see this around 14, 15 in swimming. Um, kids have been at it for a long time. They're not really into it that much. Parents won't let them out. Nope. They checked out and they're you know that's it. So they, they've leveled out and, and that's it. And that's a really tough thing for a kid to have to deal with in their teens in high school when they got all this other stuff going on in their social life they're trying to figure out who they are in the larger world so these high pressure parents are actually setting their children up for failure not for success because you have to give the child room to grow at every level and then when they're an adult they will have the ability if they want to take themselves to the next level in an area that they wanna take themselves. And I think this is really important to remember if you have very high goals for your children. And, and my goal is not to limit them. My goal isn't for them to do anything, it's to have them do. And you know, if, if I got a president of the United States and a gold medalist and a CEO living in the house, I don't wanna limit where they can take themselves but I don't really care about pushing them. I just want to be that I I want them to be at grade level. And, and I, and I, and I think as a society, we waste a tremendous amount of resources on big name sports and the Mm. college education system. And the only way we were able to do that is by the amount of money that we put in, by consuming the products and the government puts in by subsidizing debt and subsidizing the whole system and the cities put in with the stadiums and all this. But that's a cultural decision. I don't have to play that game with my family. I can be aware of it and make my kids aware of it and then praise them on the things that I value and I believe.
4: Mm.
1: And see where that goes. And one of my great reflections or insights is that I had far less influence than I thought I did throughout the various years of parenting young people. And so you get really wrapped up trying to trying to do everything the right way. And then you realize that they're their own creatures and they're going to follow their own path, even if you make the perfect speech or if you show them the perfect environment. Um, and so that kind of takes some pressure off the parents, I think.
0: Yeah, they're they're always watching. They don't really care what I say, although the, they'll mm. be polite and listen to me. They just want to know what I do. So my actions, my choices, you know, um, my decision to exercise every morning, my decision not to drink alcohol, my decision not to smoke, my decision to eat salads and vegetables and healthy is what is teaching them, not what I'm talking about. It's they are learning from what I do. They're learning from how I treat them how I treat every person that they see me interact with, and most importantly, how I treat their mother. That is probably the central relationship uh, education that they get is via my marriage um, in terms of seeing how that works, what a healthy relationship looks like, how we problem solve, what happens when we disagree, all that kind of stuff. They just pick up by living it.
1: I'm so excited to introduce you to Paluva. This is a new Please visit paluva.com, that's P E L U V A, and use the code BRADPODCAST and get 10% off your first pair. Paluvas, let your feet be feet. Thank you so much for listening to the Be Rad Podcast. We appreciate all feedback and suggestions. Email podcast at bradventures.com and visit bradkearns.com to download five free ebooks and learn some great long cuts to a longer life, how to optimize testosterone naturally, become a dark chocolate connoisseur, and transition to a barefoot and minimalist shoe lifestyle.